It's Friday, October 5th, and this is The Daily Dive. Well, it seems that we are on our way to getting a new Supreme Court justice. The FBI turned in its report on Brett Kavanaugh, and Republicans seem more confident that he will be confirmed, while Democrats continue to remain unhappy with the report, saying it was not a thorough enough investigation because they didn't talk to enough witnesses. A procedural vote is set for today, and a final vote to confirm Kavanaugh could come this weekend. Daniel Strauss, reporter for Politico, joins us for what we know about the FBI report and the final Senate vote. Next, it's October, so that means Halloween is around the corner. And to get in the mood, we're going to talk about zombies. More specifically, ant zombies. Matt Simon, writer for Wired, will tell us about a fungus called Ophiocordyceps, which literally takes over the bodies of ants until it eventually kills them. It is a fascinating story of how the fungus grows inside the muscles of the ants, uses it to infiltrate the ant colony, and then forces it to its death, only to rain down more fungal spores on the rest of the colony. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We have found nothing, absolutely nothing, to corroborate accusations against him, and we need to confirm him right away. Senator, you, uh, you just read the FBI background report on Kavanaugh. What are your thoughts? That report, if that's an investigation, it's a bullshit investigation. The reality is that, that, that is not a full and thorough investigation. Joining us now is Daniel Strauss, reporter for Politico. So the vote is upon us. I mean, there's a procedural vote. Then there will be uh, the final vote on whether to confirm Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. The big thing that everybody had been waiting for was this FBI report, the follow-up on the uh, background investigation on Brett Kavanaugh. The Senate was able to see the report. They, they had all sorts of rules which were kind of interesting. They had to be in a very secure location. They couldn't bring their phones in if they took notes. They can only take notes and then they had to leave them there. They couldn't depart with any of the notes. It's very hush-hush. What are people saying so far about this FBI report on Brett Kavanaugh? I mean, it depends if you're talking Democrats or Republicans. Republicans say there is nothing in the report that complicates or compromises or really changes the opinion of defenders of Kavanaugh. So they are saying all speed ahead. Let's confirm this guy. Democrats, on the other hand, feel that either this report was too narrow in scope to really sufficiently answer and satisfy all the questions that any critics of Kavanaugh might have on the allegations against him, and that what was in the, the report does not put to rest the allegations against Kavanaugh. They spoke to Senator Kamala Harris, and she was complaining that they didn't do enough. But she was asked the question, does this change anything that we've heard so far? Does this add anything? And she said, nope, meaning there was no extra smoking gun or anything like that to lead senators to maybe change their minds. And as you said, you know, Democrats were complaining that they didn't interview all sorts of other people. I think Deborah Ramirez had given the FBI a list of about 20 people or so that she said could have corroborated the story or had more input onto what was going on, and the FBI did not look into them. The FBI didn't interview Brett Kavanaugh himself or Christine Blasey Ford. That was the main sticking point here. But at this point, really, even the day the report came out, everyone was pretty dug in. And the expectations that this report would sway a large swath of the Senate is just unrealistic. Before and after the report came out, all the attention, all the questions were really on less than a handful of senators, Joe Manchin, Murkowski, and Susan Collins. 
and Jeff Flake and really how they would vote. But otherwise, we really know the battle lines here. To be clear, it wasn't really an investigation. You know, they were just going through and interviewing certain people that might have known anything that could shed some light on anything. But they were just reporting what was in those interviews and they were not going to the FBI was not going to make any conclusions. So it wasn't an investigation. So when Democrats say, oh, they didn't thoroughly investigate, that's kind of not what they were going to do anyways. And as you said, it really everybody was dug in, really didn't have a good chance of swaying people one way or the other. So far, I know Senator Heidi Heitkamp has said that she is going to vote no. She is a Democrat, but she is in a red state that President Trump won. But polling in her state is showing her behind her competitor in the in the midterm. So maybe she's just feeling like it doesn't matter. I'm just going to vote against him. That's really the feeling there. That That is the part of the matter here that like. There, there was never going to be that only a few lawmakers were really going to sway this one way or another. And look, there's still a chance. We, we still don't we still haven't seen the vote. The holdouts like Collins have held their cards pretty close to their chest. But I am skeptical at this point of the chances that uh, Kavanaugh will not be confirmed. So now is a procedural vote later today uh, and then 30 hours, I think, of discussion that can happen, and possibly Saturday, we could have the final vote on Brett Kavanaugh. Yep. There's really not much Democrats can do at this point in the game to stop this nomination. And that's despite polling showing that more people in the United States believe Christine Blasey Ford than they do Brett Kavanaugh. Um, but there's, there just aren't Republicans control the Senate and the White House. Those are the two main tools that... Uh, a party needs to confirm a Supreme Court justice, and Democrats don't have either of them. I mean, it's just been such a crazy circus the way this whole thing has played out. Divisions across party lines. I mean, the country, I feel like, is divided over this. There's been reports talking about how, you know, there was a blue wave coming and things like that. And there was, you know, the Democrats, the voter base was very motivated to turn out in the midterms. Reports are saying now that a Republican GOP enthusiasm. Uh, has grown largely because of what's going on with Brett Kavanaugh. And now the GOP base is very motivated to come out in the midterms. So, uh, you know, what happens then now because of what we all went through with this uh, confirmation process throws up the midterms into even more turmoil? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I don't I would be skeptical to say that Kavanaugh's appointment assures that Republicans will continue to control the House. I think the Republicans and Democrats I've talked to continue to say that the House is very likely to switch parties and be in Democratic control after the midterm elections in November. I do think that Republicans are the one motivating factor in confirming Kavanaugh, not withdrawing his nomination and pulling some, putting someone else in, is that it is something that rank-and-file Republicans feel very strongly about. And this fight has energized both the left and the right. And look, I, right now it's it's still improbable, but not inconceivable that Republicans could con- lose control of the Senate. Uh, I'm skeptical, but it's still within the realm of possibility. And so if you're a Republican operative or if you are someone who, a voter, who really cares about President Trump's promise to nominate judges 
to major courts in the country, uh, electing and, uh, and confirming uh, Brett Kavanaugh is a key issue, and it's something that you will go out and donate money for and march for, um, uh, write to lawmakers for. It's something that Republicans badly need in a cycle where energy and enthusiasm has really been on the Democratic side. Well, it's going to be interesting how the weekend unfolds. We very well could have a new Supreme Court justice at the end of it. Daniel Strauss, reporter for Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Starts building up pressure in this little bubble of the spore and actually explodes itself into the ant's body, um, which is just the beginning of the nightmare for the ant. So it begins growing throughout the ant's tissues, and it's actually growing in the muscle fibers and actually prying the fibers apart. Joining us now is Matt Simon, staff writer at Wired. It's October. It's one of my favorite times of the year. Halloween is quickly approaching, and I just get into this mood. I just get into this, you know, kind of Halloween mood all October long. So I wanted to talk about zombies specifically. uh, I love the way you put it in the article, the crawling dead, how ants turn into zombies. And I've seen this story before. I I kind of loosely knew about it. It was a fungus that attacks these ants, turns them into zombies for their own purpose. But let's get deeper into this. Uh, What happens? What is this fungus and how do they take these ants over? Yeah, so it's a it's actually an increasingly well studied fungus called Ophiocordyceps, um, and I think it's increasingly well studied because it is so incredibly fascinating the way that it, really it is. takes over the mind of its host, and that is ants in you know rainforests in South America. And, and what's super fascinating about it is individual species of Ophiocordyceps fungus will only target one species of ant. It is hyper adapted to this one species and none other in the rainforest that it inhabits. And that's probably because it's a pretty complex thing to take over another animal. So you know, what I'll, I'll just do kind of a, a brief synopsis because it's an incredibly complicated manipulation. What happens is this spore of the fungus lands on the cuticle, which is the exoskeleton of the ant. And what happens is it starts building up pressure in this little bubble of the spore and it starts releasing enzymes that break down the cuticle and actually explodes itself into the ant's body, um, which is just the beginning of the nightmare for the ant. So it begins growing throughout the ant's tissues and it's actually growing in the muscle fibers and actually prying the fibers apart, which leads to this really strong atrophy, which doesn't makes sense based on what's going to happen next. So what happens is the fungus manipulates the ant to stumble out of the colony and up in a very specific position in a tree. And this is consistent across ants. This will happen time and time again. It's about 10 inches off the ground. It will order the ant to bite onto the leaf, uh, the vein of a leaf, which locks it then in that position. And it's hanging upside down. And it's at this point that the fungus dispatches the ant, it kills it, and grows out the back of its head as a stalk and then begins raining spores. It starts the process all over again. Yeah, onto the the ground below. And it just so happens to position the ant directly over the colony's trails, (laughs) which, of course, increases the chances that it's going to infect more ants. And so when the fungus is growing through the muscles, this wouldn't make sense, right? If it's kind of destroying these muscles, how is it then ordering the ant out of the colony? And this is 
really preliminary research. But what they're thinking is that it is actually acting as a kind of nervous system in and of itself. So it's actually replacing the nervous system of the ant. So it might be releasing neurotransmitters that mimic those of the ant's own body to actually manipulate individual muscles. So it's like a puppet master pulling strings. And it's just astonishing how this could have evolved, but it probably happened small step by small step. It started more simple than that, of course, but these extra manipulations help the fungus propagate itself to get into more ants. And that's what led to the development of this extremely complex manipulation that nevertheless is happening. I can guarantee you that it's happening. It's real life. It's happening out there in nature. Now, it's kind of crazy. It takes about three weeks for the fungus to grow with inside the ant. And you talk about how, I mean, it's so crazy how delicate this procedure is because, you know, ants live in this colony. When they notice something is amiss and another ant sick or stumbling or acting weird, Another ant will literally come and take it, pick it up and throw it down to its death, you know, away from the colony, protecting the colony. So the fungus has to be very careful that it doesn't trigger something weird in the ant, that it's going to trigger one of the other ants and suspect it of being some type of intruder. So how does that work? How does the fungus delicately move around this? Because at the very end, as you said, when it makes it go bite the leaf or the tree branch or something, that's the point it takes over the brain kind of. But before that, the ant is still operating normally within the colony. Yeah, that's the really incredible thing about ants. You know, I, I don't want to, to to short them on credit here. They're really good, at, as you said, at uh, sniffing out their own that happen to be sick because you want to quarantine those individuals before they wreak havoc on the, the rest of the colony, whether that uh, pathogen is a fungus or some other sort of disease. It's a thing that has evolved over many millions of years in ants, which then, as you mentioned, the fungus has to then skirt. So that's probably why this is such a complex manipulation. So they're not, scientists aren't quite sure yet how it's able to avoid detection because ants are really good at sniffing out pheromones. That's how they communicate and largely find their way around. Yet somehow the fungus ends up taking over about half of the body weight of the ant, which you would assume would smell a little different than a typical ant. So because they have this really intricate, unique system of sniffing out bad actors in the colony, that's probably why the fungus is so complex. It it probably started out killing the ant a long time ago, millions upon millions of years ago. And this is, in fact, that they found fossils that are many millions of years old of leaves with the characteristic bite marks of the ant in them, which presumed that the fungus has been doing this for a very long time. So it probably started out pretty simple where it kills the ant in the colony, but that might get it found out and that would get it dragged out of the colony and into the graveyard where the (laughs) the sick ants go. I love the way you put it in the article too. It has to drive its host mad yet not mad enough to raise the alarms in the colony. Exactly. So yeah, and you know, and it doesn't really show the symptoms. The ant doesn't really show the symptoms until it is literally stumbling out of the colony as the fungus is ordering it to its doom up, you know, 10 inches up a tree. So, you know, this is as I mentioned, this is an incredibly complex manipulation. It doesn't seem possible, but that is the beauty of natural selection and evolution. Over millions upon millions of years, this has grown increasingly complex because the ant colony is itself extremely complex and able to sniff out this sort of manipulation if the ant is acting at all weird. So that is all the more pressure on the fungus to evolve to avoid detection and really pull off this 
just yeah. astoundingly complex, devious manipulation. And that's how we get the zombie. I mean, he, it's so delicate, that process in infiltrating the colony. And they even have to time it right. The, you know, the fungus has to time it right so that when the ant is leaving the colony, that's when it releases all the chemicals and finally taking over the brain to make it go 10 inches up and bite the leaf and everything. It's just so interesting how these things work. And uh, you were saying earlier, it does uh, originate in the rainforest, but there are some here in the United States as well. In uh, South Carolina, I think, uh, we have a, a, a certain uh, type of this fungus as well. Yeah, and that's actually where it gets, if you can believe it, all the more incredible because uh, in the southern United States, you, of course, have trees that will shed their leaves once a year. And that, of course, would be bad for the fungus if the fungus is ordering the ant to bite onto the vein of a leaf. That means it's going to tumble out of the tree and lose its perch above the colony. So what has happened here in the southern United States, as well as other temperate climates around the world, is the fungus doesn't order the ant to bite onto the vein of a leaf, but instead the branch or a twig, which is a perch that it can maintain year-round, even as the leaves fall off the tree. The problem there is that that's a little bit more delicate of a perch. It's easier to get a purchase on the vein of a leaf by biting into it. So what actually happens here in the United States is as the fungus is ordering the ant to bite onto the twig, it's not such a good purchase, but then orders the ant to wrap its legs around the twig and then grows as the fungus grows out of the legs and kind of attaches them to that stem. And that's just all the more power to, to purchase there and you know get a good grasp because in this temperate climate, the fungus can't develop nearly as quickly as it does in the rainforest, where it's nice and warm and, and humid. It actually develops over the course of a year, and it will overwinter just sitting there on a stem, biding its time. And then once the spring comes around, it will then finally erupt out of the back of the head of the ant as it does in the rainforest, oh, whereas, you know, in the rainforest, it does it in a number of days as opposed to months upon months. So it's really fascinating how in different parts of the world, the fungus is uniquely adapted to really ruin the day yeah. of the ant in a, in a very unique way. It's such a creepy, cool story. And I've seen the picture of the fungus growing out of the ant's head and it looks pretty crazy. We're going to link to your article. This is all part of a book that you wrote called Plight of the Living Dead. Tell us about the book. Yeah, so it turns out that the fungus is just one of the many, many manipulators among parasites in the animal kingdom. So it turns out that this is across a different species. So worms do it to crickets. They will order the crickets to jump into water, which is not, of course, great for the cricket, which can drown or be eaten by a fish. And it's at that point the worms erupt and then mate. That's uh, a particular kind of manipulation. Rabies actually is a, a very well-known parasitic manipulator that does it usually to raccoons and possums and things like that, but can also get into the human brain. So the book is about the wide range of parasites, the really incredible range of parasites, more than you would ever imagine, that can take over the minds of their hosts in really unique ways, whether that's by releasing chemicals or physically altering structures in the brain. So it's Apply the Living Dead, and yes, it's it's uh, what I hope is a fascinating exploration of this very strange kingdom of species that are uh, really ruining the days of their hosts. Just reading about the ants in and of itself is so interesting. So thank you very much, Matt Simon, staff writer at Wired, author of Plight of the Living Dead. Check out the book. Thank you for joining us. And thank you very much for having me. All right, that's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter 
and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive.